ideas, inspiration, innovation. This is The Game Changer. And now here's your host, Chickie Fitzgerald. Good afternoon, this is Chickie Fitzgerald, and we have a show today that is going to go perhaps a little longer than our normal show, but it is because we have both a topic that I think will engage so many of you, and also a guest that I think you are just going to find fascinating. So welcome this morning to Paul Greenberg. Paul, how are you today? I'm actually under the circumstances pretty good, hunkered down like everybody else, but um, figured out how to work from here and how to communicate with people and how to have a lovely time with my friends as best as you can, you know, so. Well, I, I think that's what we're all doing. And I, I have worked from home for 10 years, so it's Thank actually you. not a, a big difference for me, but it's been interesting watching other people get used to things. And quite frankly, I am astounded that the uh, internet in people's homes is still actually operating with so many people shifting to working at home. I know, actually, you know what? I was talking to a colleague of mine, he's also my partner on a show we do called Serum Play, it's Brent Leary. And we were actually talking literally about that. And also, I mean, the other side, which is interesting, is just kind of right in the midst of the beginnings of the transition to 5G on the cellular side too. And we're in the midst of the transition, right? So, um, you know, and the bandwidth scope of that is just huge. And what's funny is that, you know, everyone's creating 5G phones and starting to begin a mainstream, a mainstream capability. And, right. and no one is like behind schedule, even with all of this and the economy getting slower and all the bandwidth being used up on all the other fronts on the via Wi-Fi, the 5G phones are cranking out on time. Even the iPhone 12 apparently is going to come out on time, even with the problems in China. So, wow. Yeah, well, it's amazing because, you know, once you, with that capability too, it'll give us a lot more operational range so that people will be able to communicate via cellular too. Because that's the other thing. You remember what happened during 9-11, you couldn't get through on any cell phone. Right. Now, I don't know about you, but I literally have no problem getting through whatsoever on a cell phone. And arguably, there are a lot more people working simultaneously on cell phones now or calling simultaneously on cell phones than there were even then. Right. So right. it's amazing. It's just amazing what we can do. Paul, I would like for you to take a, a little step back because some of our listeners may not know anything about you. So can you give us a thumbnail and you can start whenever you want uh, career-wise, family-wise, uh, you know, where do you live? Uh, just give us your thumbnail. Well, let's see. Uh, I guess the greatest single achievement in my life is my wife's managed to keep, actually decides she wanted to stay with me for 38 years. So <laughs> that, that's kind of worked out and uh, makes me pretty happy, I have to say. And other than that, I mean, you know, fascinating. What I expected to be and what I am now have no relationship whatsoever. So where did you start? What did you think you were going to do as you were well, of growing course, up? I'm 70. So I grew up in the 60s. And when I was a little boy, I was in the 50s. 
I was an ardent, I still am an ardent, diehard New York Yankees fan. And so Mickey Mantle was my hero. So, of course, I thought when I was, you know, eight, I would be a baseball player. I realized by the time I was probably 10, that wasn't happening. <laughs> so, so reality set in early. That's nice. Really well, it was, let's say, good hit, no field. That was <laughs> and so um, when I went to... I, but it always, I always had an affinity for writing. I was always a good writer. And I was a good writer since I was a kid, actually. And I kind of knew that. And so I went to Northwestern to journalism school there, which, you know, at the time and even now is considered number one journalism school in the country, at least. And uh, I went to be a sports reporter. But oddly, 1967-71, that was the era, of course, the Vietnam War was raging. And those four years were the hard, the central four years of the anti-war movement. I right. being... Um, I say somebody who goes all the way on things took it way further than anti-war. I went to, essentially, I joined uh, and became the chairman of Students for a Democratic Society at Northwestern, which was the Maoist organization on the campus and became what was considered one of the more dangerous radicals in the United States at the time. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah, <laughs> that was kind of my life in the early days. I stayed in, I'm, I won't go into detail on this part, but I stayed into those politics for a few years and then con more conventional politics, meaning I'll call it, and to this day, uh, retain a few political ties. To the, I'll call it, I'm on the far left wing of the Democratic Party. That's where I kind of sit now. So Got it. I, Got I'm it. no longer a Marxist, but, but <laughs> I realized in the 90s that, you know, aside from having literally not a dime to my name, uh, my wife and I were, had nothing because, well, you know, you're in politics, you're an idealist or a... Uh, power hungry. And we were the idealist types and idealists don't make money. So, right, which right. is fine. I, you know, I'm still an idealist, although oddly I've made money, but, um, but I decided to move on and do something else. And I, I didn't know what I was going to do because I was in politics in 20 some odd years. And I thought, I have no skills. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I have no skills at all. But when you look at it, I actually did have skills. And again, that's a story over a long drink. Uh, <laughs> But what happened was I decided to get into technology. And the first thing I ever did was I built a Lotus Notes practice at a company. Oh, how funny. Very, and then I went into building ERP practices like PeopleSoft and SAP. And then in 1999, I was asked by the company I was at. And at that point, I was the EVP at this company. It's number two guy, small company, about $5 million, to find a new direction for the company. And I was looking around and looking around. And, I, and the, the thing is, I don't actually like business very much. I never have. And I still don't, which always sounds that, funny. It, it does sound funny, especially with what the topic of your first book was. But well, continue. of course. And my, on top of all my books are basically on business. But, and I'm even considered like a business guru, which I can't explain. <laughs> I can't explain that at all. But I've never liked business. Again, you know, my inner, the inner me still wants to be a baseball player, right? So uh, I was looking around and I was trying to find this, what would be a really good thing to do. And I found this thing that was not even called CRM at the time, but it was CRM. And I thought, okay, well, I kind of liked that. And the reason I liked it was the way I used to define it in the earliest days was CRM is the only science of business that attempts to reproduce an art of life, which is how human beings interact, exactly. right? And that's why I liked it. I liked it because it was human, 
right? And now, did it end up being that? No, and we can get into that later. But ultimately, that's how I got into CRM. And then, oddly, I didn't know anyone in the industry. I was trying to figure out how to break in. And I thought, you know what? I don't know anything about CRM. I don't know anyone in the industry. Oh, I'll write a book about it. Right? And I literally, I knew nothing about CRM when I wrote the first edition of CRM to be light. That's how I learned it. And by the time I wrote the fourth edition, of course, I knew a lot about CRM. And luckily, at the time I wrote the first edition, it resonated with people, right? So people began seeking me out, began talking to me, began, and it just sort of went from there. And here I am now. God knows how I got here exactly, but <laughs> what I'm here. Well, that is fascinating. And I will tell you, now it makes perfect sense why you got involved in the Sports and Entertainment Alliance and Technology, mm -hmm. because that love of baseball, you know, obviously has carried through. And it's so funny, because when you talk about the time frame, I'm, I'm a, a little bit behind you uh, age-wise, but my husband is, is uh, just about your age. And in 1970, my family moved from Indiana to Milwaukee. And that, really? was, uh, that was the year that the Brewers came from Seattle to Milwaukee. And I was a diehard Brewers fan. And they were doing really, really well sure. during those years. And it was just so much fun. Well, uh, of course, now I'll admit this. I might not have admitted it when my parents were alive, but I would skip out of school. And, and go go to the Brewers game. And, you know, all I could afford were the, the bleacher seats. And, and most of the time, you know, for the opening day, you'd have to brush the snow off of the bleachers, right? Because <laughs> it was still cold. And, and now, you know, full circle, you know, I live in Tampa now. And while I don't go see the Rays play much, I do love the Yankees and they train here. So, you know, Ooh. you and I are connected on yeah. all different fronts. You're my new best friend. <laughs> so what, let me ask you a question. So back when you were first rooting for the Brewers, were you like Robin Young and Paul Molitor? Yeah, well, Paul was the cute one. Right. Robin, Robin right. was kind of a geeky-looking guy, but they were both amazing. Oh my God! Yeah. Well, they're both Hall of Famers, I think. Yeah, and then the funny thing was, I ended up. Uh, I started working in the in the area of technology in travel technology in. 1978 and ended up uh, doing a consulting gig with uh, a travel agency actually in Kansas City and I was living with the owners of, of the agency and they had season tickets to the Royals cool. and you know right by third base uh, and you know of course George Brett was my hero and I don't know if you will remember what happened of you know, the, summer, the summer of 82, but that was the first baseball strike. And it's like, are you kidding me? I've got these tickets and here I am and I can't even go. Anyway, my husband and I actually broke up with baseball when we lived in Atlanta and finally could afford to buy season tickets. And that was <laughs> the second baseball strike. So, oh my God, that was 94, right? Yes, yes. <laughs> Yeah, so baseball oh has been a a a thread in my life. Although certainly I never wanted to be a player, but uh, let's let's talk about your first book. And I didn't know that you didn't know anything about it, which actually makes it all the more interesting. So you know, I just want to kind of walk back through that book, and we're not going to spend a lot of time on it, but uh, I think it sets the ground 
work for what I want to talk about today, because CRM then, which was about a little over a decade ago, and CRM now are two very different animals. And you you talked in that book about just the very definition of CRM. And I, I love one statement that you make that the view from above still needs binoculars, right? You, you can't just look at the 40,000 foot view and see things clearly. So why don't you just talk to me a little bit about the definition of CRM and how you see that it has changed from then until now? Well, I mean, keep in mind in the very early aughts, like 2001, two, when the first, that was when the first edition came out and the second edition, kind of around that time. The promise of CRM and the, let's say, the scope that we wanted it to be at the same time was greater than what it actually turned out to be. And don't get me wrong, it's been amazingly successful and still is. And has actually gone, if you're looking at that era, from a uh, nice to have to a need to have. And you, it's not like you even have an option anymore. You don't have a CRM system in your, at your business and you're of a reasonable size. You're going to have a lot of issues. But the promise was much greater at the time. So when we looked at CRM then, we looked at it as a business strategy. We looked at it as, and I looked at it at least, as a philosophy, right? But also as a system and a technology that's supporting that strategy and philosophy. And you could make a bad case now and say it's that, but it really isn't anymore. What happened was when we would say CRM back then, we would be talking about what I just outlined. But over the years, as it evolved, what you found was that when you're talking to the practitioners, when you're talking to people who are actually implementing CRM or, you know, who are using CRM at their companies, even on the business side, they view it as the system, the technology that they use for sales, customer service. And sometimes marketing, sometimes they don't view marketing that way, which is actually a mistake, but either way. So CRM narrowed to a highly important operational technology and system, right? But it was operational. It wasn't a business business strategy. You had a strategy around your CRM system, but when you were dealing with business strategies that had to do with customers, They tend to be defined now, let's say, more rightfully around either or and or interchangeably customer engagement and customer experience. And probably much as I'd rather was customer engagement, because that's actually what most of this is, uh, tends to be more defined by CX, by uh, customers. But CRM itself also has evolved to something from the operational side that becomes vitally important to businesses because ultimately it helps you manage everything from your transactional to your operational requirements. And you look at it now, you know, you start seeing CRM, you know, you start seeing organizations like, let's say when Calidus Cloud existed independent of SAP, you know, it claimed lead to money, which is essentially two thirds of the CRM configuration when it comes to process. But if you looked at their fundamental core offering, there was no core CRM offering. It was just sales enablement, sales onboarding, marketing, you know, uh, adjunct marketing capabilities, sales compensation. So CRM now encompasses all that value add too. So ultimately though, as it's defined now, it's basically what you are doing to run your sales, 
what you're doing to run your marketing, what you're doing to run your customer service and any integrations thereof. It gets complicated. Look, now that as, as from a programmatic or from a from standpoint of a business imperative, companies are looking at aligning sales and marketing departments. There's been a big change over that in the last few years. And consequently, you have to build a technology that supports that. So for example, uh, Salesforce has a product called Salesforce Engage, which is a totally misnamed product. But uh, <laughs> at the same time, does account for the alignment of sales and marketing. It's a Pardot product. And essentially what it's said, for example, if you look at a sales department, they look at a marketing campaign. They go, it's a global marketing campaign for a large company. They'll go, this has nothing to do with what I need to sell. So they just write their own collateral or they rewrite the global campaign to whatever they want. And they don't bother to get marketing's permission. So on the one hand, sales is driven crazy by marketing ignoring their specific needs. On the other hand, marketing is driven crazy by sales ignoring their universal needs, their global needs. And consequently now, when you look at this new technology for CRM, the alignment of sales and marketing, what happens, right? Yeah, you can change the collateral, but you got to get actually permission from marketing, an agreement from marketing. So it, it forces via process, business rules, and so on. The, the, the goals and objectives to align and the handoffs to align and the interactions to align so that people aren't basically pissing each other off all day and night and at the same time are getting things accomplished that are valuable to everybody. That's right. how CRM works contemporarily. That's not customer engagement and that's not CX. That's exactly. operational, successful, customer-facing department work. Right. And I want to talk a little bit about this from a smaller company perspective. It's interesting because I became aware of you through a colleague of mine that I am helping build a new marketplace for the wedding industry. And of course, you had done some work with David's bridal. So your name came up, but here, here was the context. And I'm not even sure I shared this with you uh, before no. we agreed to have you on the show, but what this individual. And, and so I want you to know that you did have a really important impact on them, you know, irrespective of how the engagement went, right? But what they told her was that she needs to make absolutely certain that she understands what data that she wants to end up with a year from now, two yep. years from now, yep. so that that data and being data driven by the activities of the business was actually going to generate value in and of itself, separate from the, the marrying of the various constituents in the bridal industry of how she was going to create this marketplace. Right. And so you did have a section of that original book that talked about data-driven CRM versus process-driven. And what you just were describing to me sounded a lot like the process side of things of, you know, how do we get from point A to point B to point C? But as I look at our own use of our own CRM, and I'm, I'm in a very small, uh, very early stage uh, travel technology company, but nevertheless, even though we only have a handful of salespeople, we still absolutely rely on that CRM. And when we first set it up, we were tracking all kinds of data that now I look at it and I think, now what in the world were we thinking? Why do we need all these fields, right? So talk to me a little bit about the value of data. Well, I mean, that's, that's pretty straightforward, right? I ultimately, especially now, look, I mean, you have to look at the change in the nature of the customer due to the communications revolution of the last almost 15 years, right? Which is they demand a lot more 
and they demand that it's more relevant to them specifically, and they demand that you act more quickly on that relevant data, and they demand that you allow them the choices that, that they need to make with you. In other words, you can't control their choices. Can't, you can't control them, but they need to feel as if you care about them enough to give them things that are important to them, right? And it's as simple as that, really. It's not, it's not, that part's not complex. What's complex is you have more than 1,000 customers, really, if you have more than two customers, that's going to be very, it's going to be hard to do because ultimately you have to figure out what it is that those people are actually looking for. So how do you, how are you going to ever find any of that? I mean, ultimately that's through data. It's not through conversation you have with every one of your customers, although that's one data point, but it's going to be their social activity. It's going to be the transactional data you have in the system. And then it's going to be your analysis of those, of that data. You know, you're going to sit down and go, okay, well, given this and this and this and this, and given that this applies to, out of my 10,000 customers, this applies to about 7,000 of them. And if I add this and this, that'll give me about 8,700. So if I use these 34 key data points, I can identify and produce these choices that I can provide to the customers that will make it feel as if I'm giving them choices that are important to them. And notice what I said there. I didn't say that are individually important. I said, we'll make them feel as if. And that's actually what it is. You're not necessarily dealing with Chicky here. You're dealing with Chicky and 400 others who have similar interests. Right. And, and if I present you and the 400 with 15 things I learned from data, basically 15 choices I learned from your data, in, you know, I learned from the data about your interests and say, okay, pick six. You'll pick six, right? And and yours might be you know one through six, and someone else's might be seven through twelve, and someone will be an amalgam of different numbers, and on and on and on. But you'll feel, oh, well, that was important. These are things that matter to me. And guess what? I get to control which ones I want to pick. And you're getting an optimal experience with that. And that's what data data. You can't do that without data. You right. literally can't do it without data unless you are literally willing to have a one to one experience with every one of your customers. Mm -hmm. which is impossible. Right. I have to tell you a really, uh, and funny, maybe not funny, haha, but a funny, uh, odd story. So my early part of my career, my first corporate job uh, was with American Airlines Sabre. And we were the automation side of the business, all of the underlying technology that it took to book a travel transaction. And at the time in 1982, when I joined them, Uh, it was the technology was only used professionally by travel agents. And then of course, by, by uh, various travel suppliers, but back in those days, Paul, and I, I'm not sure how this has changed to be honest with you, what was called the passenger name record, the PNR, where, where all of the travel information resided, it actually got purged 24 hours after the last segment, which meant all of that data, all of that intelligence about where you traveled and why got purged out of the mainframe system. And so if there weren't systems in place in the travel agency that was capturing that data, at least for accounting purposes, right? I mean, there was no such thing in those early days, not until uh, maybe the late 80s, early 90s, did they start adding what we now know as CRM in, into those systems. All of that data was lost. Oh, my and, God. 
I remember when uh, when Terry Jones and his team started the Travelocity Group, yeah. which had, was actually born out of a group called Easy Saber. And yeah. we used to joke because Easy Saber was anything but easy. It was on Prodigy and CompuServe, and it was very cryptic. It was better than the, the professional travel agency version, but it was still tough. But one of his first claims to fame was really getting the company to recognize that they needed to take that data intelligence and use it for marketing, right? And, you know, it's interesting having come from that background and now to be in the place where I am, uh, and just to give you just a, a little thumbnail on me, I am considered one of the global experts on marrying buyers and sellers in the travel industry. So all of the underlying technology, whether it be the travel agency desktop, all the way to online travel. And so my current company, are one of the core pieces of our product is actually integrating a little travel booking widget directly into CRM platforms. Because think really? about where you learn that you need to travel, right? You call me and you say, hey, Chicky, I'm going to come and see you. And we're going to have a meeting. And oh, by the way, are the Yankees in town, right? And and then your question to me is, uh, if, if you're calling me, is where should I stay, right? Well, imagine if your CRM has my information and you can just find a hotel nearby where I am. And it just particular moment in time I work from home. So you need a hotel room nearby me. Or you might say, you know what, I would rather stay by the Yankee Stadium, right? And yeah. so you would be able to put in that address, not, not even have to look up the address, you could type in Steinbrenner Stadium, and it would pull up the address and find the available hotels nearby that, right? So what we're doing is I took a look at the last 20 years of CRM and said, okay, well, they've done a really good job of advancing the ability to communicate with people, whether by phone or by, by email, that works really, really well in CRM. And then to be able to detect who actually responds to your campaigns, right, that marketing automation piece, that works really, really well. But the face-to-face -face piece has not changed in 20 years. The face-to-face -face piece, you're pretty much on your own. So that's what my interest in CRM is, is it's, it's a core platform where I believe our, our capabilities should live, right? And, and we've made it so that they can plug it in literally in minutes and have it available for all of their clients. So when I look at CRM and, and you know, again, fast forward now, here we are, and I want to get to talking about your other book because that is also a very, very interesting topic to me. But you, you take CRM and you talked about it, you know, at the beginning of this decade, right? Or actually even the, the previous decade, CRM at the speed of light. So where are we now, right? Are we still, are we operating at the speed of light or have we even accomplished that? Well, actually, before we get there, you know what your saber purge story reminded me of? What's that? Parents getting rid of baseball card collections because they were cluttering up the attic. Oh, no right? kidding. The same idea. <laughs> right? And then you say, where's my collection, mom? Oh, we threw it out. And now it's, of course, worth $150,000, right? So uh, <laughs> it's literally the same thing. It's like, that was my immediate response when I heard that. I was like, oh, God, yeah. right? So that's, and now I have, before we get to, I have one more question for you, actually. So with your widget, you know, so to speak, because um, look, I mean, one of the things I've always seen is a problem with most, both airlines, hotels, everything, is their address search capability is terrible. 
It uh, is. And because it isn't built into the data, the data is a travel transaction is airport centric or city centric. It doesn't actually know your actual destination where you're going. So if you are coming to see me, you need to be in Carrollwood, which is north of downtown. And if you stay downtown or you stay near the airport, you might be as much as 45 minutes away. So our product is called Trip Proximity because proximity is important and you want to be able to stay nearby your prospect or your client or the vendor that you're going to see, right? Because it may not even be somebody that you're trying to sell to. It may just be a business partner. And so that is why we instituted that. And, and the other thing that I believe in, and so your, your second book, which I want to get to in a second, talks about customer engagement. I believe that engaging those customers that a CRM has to engage, right? Because their customer is the person who chooses to use their product, right? And so setting themselves apart from their peers, because there are so many, I bet there are, what are there, a thousand CRM companies now? Oh, more than that. Okay. And, right. And so maybe 25 that matter, right, that have enough volume to really matter. But the ability to set yourself apart is all about in how you engage your customers. And the, the one point I want to tie back to your previous book when we talk about customer engagement is I believe that even though we are going to see a new normal after this whole COVID-19 thing, I believe that the value of face-to-face is still going to emerge as being critically important. And that while a lot of business will move online, my, my observation of what has happened in the CRM realm in the last, I would say the last 10 years, right, is that marketing automation has taken over and it has flooded our LinkedIn boxes, our email boxes, our voicemail in the same way that our mailboxes were flooded, you know, 20 years ago to where if you actually had a letter from someone, that was really important. You know, my husband travels all the time and, you know, if he's gone, I don't think to go get the mail. And he'll say, well, why didn't you get the mail? It's like, well, because there's nothing important in it. And I feel the exact same thing about my email box now, right? I used to live in my email box and now I get 250 to 300 emails a day of which maybe three are important. And because I use a CRM platform, I actually look there (laughs) because if it's important, it will show up there, right? So, So let's talk about business success through customer engagement. And your, your newer book is called The Commonwealth of Self-Interest. So tell me where that title came from and where the whole concept of customer engagement emerged. Because you talked a lot about your first book being really about process and about technology, but it didn't really get to the heart of customer engagement. No, I mean, indirectly it did, but not directly. I mean, again, you have to take into account my original definition of CRM was much more expansive than what it became, you know? So right, and I love that you talked about the promise of CRM, yeah. right? Instead of what, what actually came out of it. Yeah. Well, you know, you'd say, if you talk to someone about CRM now, as soon as you say CRM, they'll, they'll say, Oh yeah. Salesforce. Or, oh yeah. Oracle. or Oh yeah. Right. Whatever. Right. It's the system to them. It's whatever the system is, the technology you're using which is fine. I mean, I gave up fighting that one a while ago, right? 2011 to be exact. You know, that's when the fight was over and I lost that one, right? So uh, that said, for example, 
I've been using the term, the Commonwealth of Self-Interest for probably 12, 13 years, right? And it's never changed in its meaning, which is engagement, right? How I got to it was a little different, but fundamentally it means this. And I, the best way to define it is by understanding uh, how I define customer engagement to begin with, which is, and I have a very explicit definition of customer engagement, very simple, but explicit. It's the ongoing interactions between company and customer this is the key part, offered by the company, chosen by the customer. And there's a lot to that. In fact, probably five chapters of the book are devoted to just that idea of that. So what that means is this. Obviously, the first part is self-evident, the ongoing interaction between company and customer. It's not ongoing. It's not engagement. And that's pretty right. clear. You know? So that, that doesn't take a lot of explanation. Second does, though. So let's start with um, offered by the company. Okay, here's the thing. The day a company is born, they're constrained at birth. They're constrained, right? They're constrained by regulation. They're constrained by finances. They're constrained by labor. They're constrained by time. They can, I would mean, keep going, right? They're constrained by a lot of things from the second that they come into existence. The minute they say we're an LLC, even a sole proprietorship, and they sign a piece of paper of some kind, that says, okay, you're a legal entity now, you're constrained. And that's, that's limited. That means there are limits on what they can do, how much they can do, how well they can do it, how long it takes them to do it, and what they're allowed to actually do. All right. The customer doesn't give a crap about that whatsoever. Right. Right. And here's the deal. If you're a bigger, if you're a mid-sized company, you have 10,000 customers, small, mid-sized. The other 9,999 customers don't give a crap about what the one customer thinks either, right? So what are you stuck with? The company is also because of the communications revolution where expectations are about how individuals interact with each other and interact with institutions change. The expectation that a customer has of that company is much more than just you will provide me with good products and services. One of the reasons for that is Courier services, by the way, not just Amazon and not just e-commerce, but right. courier services. Because my options all of a sudden are, I don't have to go into Nordstrom's, right? I don't have to go into a store. I can get online and I'll have it just about the same amount of time as I would have it if I went to the store. Exactly. And consequently, there's so many choices I have for that product and or service. So what else do you have to provide me, company? You have to provide me with consumable experiences, meaning things that are not products or services, but are, when I say consumable, it means they are uh, monetizable. And you have to provide me with tools to support my interactions with you. And if you don't do those things, I'll just look elsewhere. Right. I, can get, I can get the same price. So what does that mean? Well, it means I'm Paul Greenberg, you're Chicky Fitzgerald. We have the Yankees in common. And so, you know, if I'm doing some initial data look, I say, oh, they're both Yankees fans. And so we get Yankees, you know, uh, Yankees paraphernalia, Yankees memorabilia ads. But they have a lot of other things we don't have in common, except you have some in common with another group of customers that are 10,000. I have some in common with a different group. We start looking at all of that stuff. And what do we find with the transactional data, with the social data, with everything else? You find that, you know, as I mentioned earlier, if you have a, a market basket, let's call it, of 60 things you can offer, and they don't have to be products and services, they can be a, a mix of all kinds of things. 
products, services, tools, everything, that 60 will satisfy the, the vast uh, majority of your customer base. So then what does the company have to do? Well, I'm constrained. I'm a company. That's 60. I can't afford to put out all 60 of those. So let me optimize this. Look at it. I say, okay, of that 60, I can probably do 38. And that 38 satisfy of that 10,000, probably 9,280, right? So I put out 38 and then I segmented a little further. I break it down a little further. I want to call it segment. Uh, I break it down a little further. I say, okay, I'll offer this group of 26 to this group, this group of 21 to this group. And some of them are intermingled and some of them are separate things. And this group of seven to that group. And then what happens? We can afford to do that. We can afford those 38 total things. But, the, and each customer gets something that they feel is both relevant and important to them. And they get to pick and choose. I'll give you an example. Several years ago, Disney Destinations had some issues, financial issues, and they saw a decline in their travel side, right? And, you know, as you well know, Disney's really as much a data company as they are a experiential right. company, right? So they took a look at the data and they found out one of the things which was enormously frustrating all these people was that they had a deal for hours, you know, putting together a Disney destination trip is complicated when you're dealing with all the kids, right? So, and they would spend hours with travel agents on the phone. And, you know, half the time they'd get off the phone, they wouldn't be done. They'd have to go back. They have to reiterate what they did with the travel agent again, would have some notes, you know, and they'd start talking about it, pick it up, not be done, go back. It would drive them crazy. Then he said, all right, you know what, let's change the site. Let's change everything we, we do on this. So they, they pretty much took the travel building experience, the vacation building experience online. And that meant you go online, find what you want to do. You put it in effectively a basket, right? You don't want to finish that day. You hit the save button, you leave, you come back. You know, if there's some changes in pricing, it's noted from the basket. If there are relevant, relevant things based on what you chose in the basket and the profile I had of you, they were suggested, et cetera, et cetera. You didn't finish again. You hit the save button. You went back, finished finally on the third chance. Now, there was one thing of all the things I said in there, there was one thing that was the single most important thing that made the difference to Disney destinations. What do you think it was? Well, the, the ability to save all of those choices and not having it. to go You're through. First, by the way, yeah. you nailed it. It's the save button. That was the most right. important possible thing. Why? Because it gave the customer control. Right. right? And that was, that's critical to all engagement, that the customer retains control of the conversation, right? And, and the interaction. And one of my original definition of social CRM, which is the only reason I wrote a fourth edition, was uh, the part that gained uh, semi-viral tweetability was uh, the last line of my definition, which was, it's the company's response to the customer's control of the conversation. That one at the time picked up just enormous amount of reference. And it's the key is, as long as you give the customer the relevant choices, give them control over right. how they choose, and then allow them to interact with you at, at will, you'll keep them as your customer. And that is the prime basis for engagement. And then over time, they'll want to do business with you because of that. So, right. and that boils down to something that has been a fundamental principle for me from day one of CRM to day, whatever we're in now of, of customer engagement. And it's a very simple principle that governs all of this. And it's so simple. It's if a customer likes you and continues to like you, they'll continue to do business with you. If they don't, they won't. And that's, <laughs> that governs all of this. 
<laughs> really, and how, how many millions do we spend on the systems to oh, tell yeah. us that? Well, well I, I want to bring up one thing, Paul. Uh, and well, I, actually, I'd like to give our listeners, because there's so much in both of these books. And by the way, if you need to learn about CRM, the first book, CRM at the Speed of Light, really is the Bible of CRM. I mean, I have never seen a more comprehensive work. But one of the things I want to point out about the new book is the way that Paul has laid it out. And I I know how these things emerge because I've written a number of books myself, but he has followed a format in the second part of this book, which is all about the framework of really understanding customer engagement, which is defining it and talking about the characteristics, then giving a case study. And then I've never seen this done, Paul, but then talking about two thought leaders in that particular arena and telling their story. And that is masterful, by the way. It it is a way to really get your arms around something and you've done it through that whole section. And, and I'm, I'm very, very, you know, obviously I have interviewed 400 business authors. And so I see a lot of books, right. And I'm a sucker for two things. One is a great cover, you know, and a, and a title that really is provocative. that makes you want to say, tell me more. And then actually having something practical that you can actually read the book with a highlighter or a pen in hand so that you can use those blank sheets at the end of the book. I finally figured out what those were for (laughs) so that you can relate it back to your own life and your business and whatever you're facing right now. And I will tell you, one of the reasons I wanted to have you on today is everyone is in this place where they're doing a reset, whether they wanted to or not. So many people, you know, at least 75% in some cities, right, are having to work from home and they have time to think about their business. What hasn't been working? What was working that won't work in whatever this new normal is going to be? And what could I take a chance on? How could I recraft my business to really be more successful when this crazy period is over. And we don't know how long that will last. But to me, customer engagement and really understanding customer experience and this whole notion of the self-interest of the person that we're really trying to appeal to. And, you know, it's funny that you use another travel example. And I think that the travel industry provides the best perspective on customer engagement, perhaps of anything, because it is, the product isn't a physical product. It's made up of a bunch of different experiences from the search process through whether they allow you to save or not. And I would say, I bet that Disney originally pushed back on saving because you can't save a hotel room without reserving it. And you can save an interest in that property, but that doesn't mean it will be available or even at the same price, right? When you finally do decide. But the other really interesting thing is all about, and back in my early, early days in the travel industry, in the uh, late seventies, early eighties, the travel profile, that was the real big thing that allowed them to start personalizing the offer. But here's the problem with that is 89% of all travel in this country is by car. And as soon as you have one more person in the car, you can't use a single dimensional profile. 
I travel differently when I'm by myself than when my husband's in the car or if we've got, you know, grandma and the dog or the kids, our choices of food, our choices of lodging, our choices of what to see along the way completely change. And in my first tech company that I started 10 years ago, uh, we actually built something called the e-twin, the electronic twin that allowed you to say who you were under all of those different circumstances. At the time, we were working with Panasonic about embedding into the dash of the car so that when you got in the car, you didn't just turn it on. You had to declare who you were at that moment. So if it's going to offer me restaurants and I say to my dash, I'm hungry, right? If I'm by myself, it's going to show me Indian restaurants and Thai restaurants because my husband really doesn't like Indian and Thai. So if he's with me, that's not what we're going to eat. But if it's the two of us, then I would pick a picture of the two of us. And the travel industry has never, ever grasped that. And so it's just so interesting now to look at how you can reshape your business. And I think your book is is just a, a really important product, part of that process. And I, I just so appreciate it. I know we've only been able to scratch the surface. But uh, Paul, how, how would you like for people to find you, follow you, learn more? I mean, clearly they could pick up your book and I'll, I'll reiterate the title of the book when we're all done. But tell us a little bit about your day job right now. Uh, you have a consulting firm. Do you do public speaking? Could people have you come speak to their teams? Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, so basically I do two kinds of work, but kind of one, which is titled by others, thought leadership work, which is the speaking, the writing, you know, white, hate white papers, but I write them occasionally. Um, you know, some webinars, all that stuff. And I, I've done hundreds to thousands plus over the years of that. A lot of my work, which is the part I like the best, is advisory. And I, it was kind of like what I did with David's Bridal for nine years in their case. I kind of shifted it a little bit more toward tech companies now, uh, honestly, because they're a lot easier to deal with probably when it comes to advisory. Uh, right. So, like, my clients would be, like, big guys and some small guys. But it's advisory work where I'm helping people with marketing and messaging. I'm helping them with product development and solution. I'm helping them alliances and partnerships. I'm helping them build analyst relations, PR programs, outreach, basically. I'm helping them with um, thought leadership programs, you know, how to actually build them out and so on and so forth. I, I've, I've done that for multiple years. Um, I fired clients, but no one's ever fired me, uh, <laughs> right? Fired one company, which will remain unnamed, only why I'm only being nice to them, for, I don't understand. But uh, <laughs> fired them last year, I walked away from the contract. They're so disrespectful. Uh, you, one thing you figure out when you're 70 is the minimum you should at least get is some respect for your age, if nothing else. <laughs> <laughs> These guys were just, oh my God. So, uh, you know, I, I, that's what I do. And I, I, I'm, I have to say, I don't like business. I've, 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 been, I've been booked by August of the prior year with everything, but it, with some of the speaking engagements that show up when they show up. But when it comes to the advisory stuff, I'm always booked. The best way to find me, honestly, is I have a, um, I have a blog. So I don't know how many of the uh, people listening are acquainted with ZDNet, but ZDNet's the largest tech blogging property in the world. It's owned by CBS Interactive. So I have the CRM, which covers engagement, CRM, CX, all that, right. uh, blog for ZDNet. And so you can find me there uh, easily enough. And it's just basically... I think it's 
www.zdnet.com forward slash blogs forward slash CRM and you'll find me. And, you know, I've done that for 11 years and then um, I'm pretty easy to find on the, on my Twitter, Facebook handle there, P Greenby with the appropriate ad symbol for Twitter and just straight P Greenby. That's P G R E E N B E. LinkedIn, it's also P Greenby. So it's really easy to find me in that regard and feel free to do it. And if you want to email me, you can do that too. It's Paul Greenberg three at the 56.net. I am very happy to communicate with anyone who emails me, communicates with me. Let's say that. And I can absolutely attest to that because uh, between the time I reached out to you, uh, to today, right, of actually having you on the show is less than a week. And and that is very, very unusual with a, a very successful business author. So, Paul, I really appreciate you being so responsive. And again, we probably could have spent half a day <laughs> on the content from your books. And, you know, I am so grateful for you taking your Friday to be with us. And again, the book that we've been talking about is The Commonwealth of Self-Interest, Business Success Through Customer Engagement. And I'm telling you right now, this is the time to pause, reset, and take a look at how you're engaging with your customers. Because you have an amazing opportunity right now to change your game. And that's what this show is all about, is how do we change the game, take a look at what has worked in the past that won't work moving forward, and, uh, and what hasn't worked, and just get rid of it, right? Don't hold on to the things that don't work. So, Paul, have an amazing weekend. Thank you so, so much for joining us. And, again, best wishes to you, and I'm so grateful for, for this new friendship that we have. Thank you, Chicky. You're awesome. I have to say, look, I, to be perfectly honest, I get a lot of requests to be on shows and I don't take that. But you, I mean, communicate in writing as well as you speak. And, uh, and uh, consequently, I just like you. <laughs> well, I'm grateful. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. You've been listening to The Game Changer. Ideas. Inspiration innovation with Chickie Fitzgerald. Like what you just heard, visit c-suiteradio.com. C-Suite Radio, turning the volume up on business.